You're listening to Feed, Play, Love, a podcast that's all about supporting parents as they bring up children. We've got experts and advice to help you through the more challenging bits of parenting. I'm Siobhan Hunt. If you're pregnant or you've had a baby, chances are you think you know your body pretty well. Many of us can get intensely interested in what's happening as our baby grows and, of course, how they'll come out. But Gabrielle Jackson's book, Pain and Prejudice, illustrates that there's a lot we don't know about our own bodies and that this lack of knowledge is leading to poorer outcomes for women. Though to be fair, it's not just women who have a lack of understanding of female anatomy, but many in the medical profession as well. Gabrielle Jackson is on the phone now. Hi, Gabrielle. How are you? I'm well, thanks. How are you? Good. So how ignorant are women of their own bodies? I think we are incredibly ignorant. um, And I think in a way it's by design, um, unfortunately. And I mean, I will say it's a bit harder for us than for men because, you know, a lot of our things are tucked up and inside and they're hard to see. They don't like hang out between our legs yes. <laughs> like men do. So, you know, you have to, um, you know, get a mirror to have a look what it looks like down there and the rest of it, our reproductive organs are all internal. So it is a bit harder for us. But to me, that makes it all the more reason to be teaching our children in school about the correct Um, you know, names and features of our anatomy. It's interesting that you say that because uh, I was pretty smug about how I talk to my kids. I have a boy and a girl and I was pretty smug about how I spoke to them about their genitalia because Mm. we've been told as parents to name body parts for what they are and not give them nicknames. But I've been telling my daughter that she's got a vagina and to use that word, but um, I should be saying vulva, shouldn't I? (laughs) Well, look, I think this is a really, really hard one because, you know, the correct, you know, we know anatomically the vagina is, you know, the muscular tube, you know, that leads from the vulva to the uterus. But I think in common language, vagina has come to mean the all-encompassing. And I think that's fine as long as we know what the differences are, as long as we also know that if we need to report a lump or something, that we know that it's the vulva we're talking about and not the vagina. It's it's really complex once a word has, you know, reached <laughs> into the depths of, you know, social consciousness to take that word away. And, I, you know, I don't think, well, I'm certainly not going to become obsessed about it, but I think it's important we acknowledge what the what the real names are and, and, and you know, teaching our children. But it's really hard. Mm, now, you just mentioned earlier that part of our ignorance is by design. What do you mean by that? I think that over the course of history, anything to do with female sexuality has been taboo and shameful. And I think that that serves a purpose to keep women subordinated. I think that's one of the key items of patriarchal society. And um, as long as we do think it's shameful, we don't talk about it. But so much to do with our reproductive organs affects our health and it's important to know what's normal and what's not normal in order to, you know, get the not normal things fixed. I, it's That part of it is, again, so interesting to me because we don't feel comfortable talking about periods or no. perimenopause or menopause. Mm. How much is getting comfortable 
as women talking about these things, how much does that contribute to making a change in the broader scale of things, including in the medical profession? I think that's really important, actually, that we start to have the confidence um, to do that. But women can't do that alone. I spoke to, for my book, I spoke to people from Plan International, um, you know, which is a human rights organisation. And when they go into, you know, developing countries, um, I was talking about a, a community in Uganda they went to, they found that the best way to ensure that girls get proper product, proper menstrual products, and to make sure they're, you know, not left at home or, you know, excluded from society during their period was to involve men and boys in the discussion. And because often it's men who enforce those social norms. And I don't, and they, and they've had great success doing that. And I don't think it's any different in Western society. We like to think we're so advanced, but we're actually not. And I think the lessons we're learning in Uganda could be applied to our society as well. Boys have to be learning about menstruation and what's normal and what's not. And it shouldn't be shameful for anyone to, you know, be having a period. You know, still young girls say it's one of the most embarrassing things and they would never admit it. Mm. Uh, That's, you know, to me, that's just crazy. Now, you were inspired to write this book after your own diagnosis of endometriosis, which took years to get a proper diagnosis for yourself. And that's not uncommon for women to finally um, get a diagnosis for endo. It takes years and years. It's very Mm. confusing and painful. Mm. Why is this particular kind of pain more easily ignored or or misunderstood? Um, So, first of all, I I got a diagnosis. It did take about seven years. But when I was in my early 20s, after suffering through my whole teens, but I didn't understand the full range of symptoms. So it was only after, you know, 14 years of a diagnosis that I realised that all these other symptoms I was having, sore back, nausea, dizziness, headaches, um, sore legs, it was all actually symptoms of endometriosis and not all these other things. So there was a lot that I didn't know about it. There's a lot that health professionals don't understand about endometriosis and that the average delay of diagnosis for endo is 7 to 12 years globally. But that is typical for all women's chronic pain illnesses. It's not just endo. And I think this is because there's this idea embedded into medicine and also our society that women are a bit hysterical. They exaggerate. They can't cope with life. <laughs> and also, on the other hand, this seems completely contradictory, that we're, it's women's lot to be in pain, right? Because childbirth is painful therefore we can put up with all this pain so on the one hand they say pain is normal for you and on the other hand when we report pain they don't believe us which is mind-boggling I mean I Mm. think particularly with endo it's such a debilitating illness uh it just seems incredible that it's still something that takes so long to diagnose is that have you noticed that change over the time as you've come to know your own illness No, so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to change it. The delay in diagnosis has not changed in the, uh, in the, well, now it's like almost 20 years since I've had my diagnosis. And that's one of the reasons why I felt like I had to write about it because medicine isn't changing fast enough. They know they don't know much about female biology. They know literally more about every aspect of male biology than female biology. There's no money going into studying these conditions. 
in the last couple of years, endometriosis has grown um, in awareness in Australia due to the work of some amazing, um, mostly women advocates, and more media attention has come on it. But um, that hasn't improved understanding of the disease yet. Uh, I think Australia is in a really good position and we're leading the way, but a lot of women are still getting really bad treatment all around Australia. A lot of women are still being dismissed or getting treatments that kind of the evidence shows are not great, getting multiple, multiple surgeries, which the evidence shows is not effective and can cause more pain rather than reducing it. So, you know... um, the National Action Plan that Greg Hunt released last year is brilliant. And if that comes off, then we will be in a really, really good position. But a lot more money is needed for that to happen. And this systemic kind of um, ignorance of women, which you outline in your book, I mean, you've, you've talked about it here, you've touched on it, that the medical profession knows almost everything about the male biology, but not the female biology. Mm. Um, is I mean, that to me is the real feminist call to arm of this book where women need to say we are being discriminated against purely because we're women. Yeah, we are. And I agree. It's really important for the people who have the power and the energy to to raise this as a as a, um, a topic and to take it all the way to our policymakers because the women with the chronic pain don't have the energy and, and often the people who are fare the worst are the most vulnerable members and them advocating for themselves to a doctor is not going to improve their position. You know, there's kind of nothing the individual person can do if their doctor doesn't believe them. So I think this is, yeah, as you say, I think it's a feminist call to arms, but I think men need to get behind this too. It's not a women's issue. It is a human rights issue. Now, when I hear stuff like this, all I can think of, I was reading your book and um, you know, cringing about how I've talked to my daughter about her own vagina, not her vulva. <laughs> and um, and I, I read books like this and think, God, I, I need her to read this book. But she's only seven. Mm, yeah. So <laughs> I, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna freak her out too much. There's many yeah. words in that in your book she won't understand. Um, mm-hmm. But what do you? think is the best way for us to go forward in educating our girls now so that when they become women, they are possibly more empowered about their own voice? Yeah, I think that, um, so there are some really good school programs happening. There's one in New Zealand, there's one being trialled in South Australia that um, really puts this in the agenda that teaches girls about, you know, their anatomy, about menstruation, about what's normal, what's not normal, about what happens in puberty. Uh, I think getting behind that and making sure that happens is important. And I think it's really important to teach girls from the youngest age that their voices matter and not to tell them that they gain their self-worth by pleasing others, but by having confidence and, you know, in themselves because this is... So much of of the delay in diagnosis in in these conditions is half of about half of it is women not reporting. You know, so often we think it's normal. We don't put ourselves first. We're looking after other members of the family. Uh, we're putting up with pain, but putting up with pain now we know could be creating the opportunity for more pain. So putting up with pain is is not a worthy cause. You know, getting yourself treated believing in yourself these are all really important and it sounds kind of nebulous in a way but 
I just think it's so important. And also, I'll show her the diagrams that you have in your book. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> so at absolutely. least at the very minimum, she won't go onto a goop site and start ste- oh. steaming her vagina or something <laughs> yes. like that. Exactly, yes. <laughs> well, yeah, I totally applaud that. <laughs> <laughs> well, Gabrielle, it's a fabulous book. It's so important. Thank you so much for writing it and thanks for talking to us today. Thanks so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. That's Guardian journalist Gabrielle Jackson. Her book is called Pain and Prejudice. It's a must read for anyone with a vulva or raising a child with a vulva. We'll put links in the notes of this episode to where you can get a copy. Feed, Play, Love is a babyology podcast produced by Debbie Ning and presented by me, Siobhan Hunt. We'd love to hear from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, email us at feedplaylove at theparentbrand.com.au. See you next time.